From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Kitavo. This week, Nahama Golan Barish discusses Kitavo. Nahama Golan Barish is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Nahama Golan Barish. The Parsha of Kitavo, in line with many of the other Parshiot in the book of Deuteronomy, sets up a clear equation. Do as God demands of you, and you will be rewarded. Transgress, or turn away from the path of God, and you will be cursed. And this has already been set out several times in the book of Deuteronomy, but it's set forth even more starkly in this week's Parsha, which invokes the tochacha, literally words of rebuke, along with the dire consequences of doom and destruction and exile if the nation strays. It is traditionally read in a low voice, as if to circumvent the implementation of such curses if we don't call attention to them. The problem with the equation is, of course, the stark reality that at times people do exactly as God demands of them, and nonetheless they are visited with misery, pain, and degradation. The Talmud addresses such situations by calling them yisurin shalahava, suffering that comes from the love of the Creator. But that is not a very strong Jewish approach, and I would like to suggest another one. The opening chapter to the book of Job challenges the paradigm of Deuteronomy. Satan challenges God to test the goodness of Job, who truly reflects the covenant set out in, De- in Devarim, in Deuteronomy. He follows in God's ways and is righteous and is rewarded. But Satan, who is described there as B'nai Elohim, or one of the divine beings created by God, questions whether a model with reward and punishment truly reflects man's belief. He tells God that it is easy for people to believe in God when their lives are financially and personally and physically comfortable. The book of Devarim, and specifically our Parsha of Kitavo, make it too easy in a way. What will happen if it's all taken away? Will man's belief sustain in the face of terrible hardship? Before going forward, let's talk about Satan and the role Satan plays in our relationship with God. Unlike Christian scripture, which turns Satan into the devil or the personification of evil with powers equal to those of Jesus and God, in Tanakh, we first encounter the idea of Satan in the story of Bilam. When Bilam agrees to go with the ministers of Balak, he is confronted by the angel who comes Satan, or to translate, comes as an adversary. The verse reads as follows. In Numbers 22, verse 32, The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? It is I who came out as an adversary, for the errand is obnoxious to me. This is where we first see a word that morphs into the personification of a being in the book of Job and later in Midrash. After Bilam hits his donkey three times to no avail, for the donkey sees the angel and is in mortal fear of its sword and not of Bilam's stick, Bilam's eyes are opened and he sees the angel. The word Satan here means adversary. He comes lisatan to act as adversary, to oppose, to put a stop to what Bilam is heedlessly doing. The angel is not Satan, but the angel is trying lisatan to oppose Bilam's course of action. There are two rabbinic interpretations or midrashim that are interesting. The first, in Midrash Tanhuma, suggests that it is an angel of mercy who has been sent on the mission of becoming Satan. 
that mercy rather than justice is the role of Satan when he comes to open up Bilam's eyes. While there is free choice, and free choice is set out as one of the main themes of the book of Deuteronomy, people sometimes need gentle or not so gentle nudges to recognize the consequence of their actions. This angel is one of mercy, and he comes to act as Satan, as an adversary, an attempt to challenge the choice made by Bilam. The second Midrash takes a totally different approach. When a man goes out to sin, Satan dances before him. He is happy when our choices lead to our downfall. The idea of Satan dancing before someone or something actually appears in a completely different context in the Tractate of Brachot, but I think the contrast is relevant. Rabbi Meir warns that one should avoid a black ox in the month of, month of Nisan, for Satan dances between his horns. Given that it is springtime in the month of Nisan, it seems to me that Rabbi Meir is talking about an ox in heat who is out of control because of the instinctive physical drive of his body. Animals have no choice, they act on instinct, and in Nisan, even an ox who might be your personal ox cannot be trusted. Human beings, in contrast, have control over their actions even until the end. So Satan dancing before a transgressor is not the same as Satan dancing between the horns of the ox. In the latter case, it is an expression that describes the uncontrollable and possibly malevolent behavior of the ox in heat, who could be unpredictably violent. In the former, Satan is dancing because Bilam is proving mankind's failability, choosing to transgress or making the wrong choice, and this validates Satan's poor view of mankind in general. Circling back to Satan in the book of Job, it is clear that Satan is challenging the model of Kitavo. An important question to be asked is who is on trial? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs suggests that Satan is questioning whether human beings should have been created at all, given their disobedience towards God and the evil perpetuated on one another that humans are capable of. It is not Job that is on trial, but God's decision to create mankind. This syncs well with the famous Midrash about the creation of man. About all of the other days of creation, God says, let there be. But when it comes to the sixth day and the creation of man, God says, let us create man in our image and our likeness. A favorite Midrash of mine paints the picture of different angels dividing into groups and arguing for and against the creation of man. The author acknowledges, however, that in the end, God does as he desires, as reflected in the biblical verse, and God created man in the singular. So God may have paused and consulted within himself, or possibly with other divine beings, as stated in the Midrash. But in the end, God desired mankind as the pinnacle of creation, even as human beings will challenge every aspect of the creation. Satan in Job pushes back at God's satisfaction with his faithful subject, Job, and forces both man and God to go deeper into the question of man's existence and man's relationship with God. When we get to the opening chapters of Job, Job is blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. As per Deuteronomy, he has earned and richly deserves the wealth, fertility, and plenty that he enjoys. He does not become complacent. Rather, he brings sacrifices to God, including sin offerings for his children, lest they waver in their faith. And yet what unfolds is one of the most complicated narratives in all of the Bible. Satan, after traveling the earth, challenges nothing short of God's providence. And God agrees to allow one of his ministers to convince him to deviate from the plan and challenge Job to a theological duel. If Job loses everything, family, wealth, and health, will he remain blameless, upright, fearing God, and shunning evil? In response to the following verse, Job 2.3, 
ויאמר אדוני אל השטן, השמת לבך על עבדי איוב? כי אין כמוהו בארץ, איש תם וישר ירא אלוהים, ושר מרע, ועודנו מחזיק בטומאתו, ותסיתני ועוד לבלעו חינם? The Lord said to the Satan, to the adversary, Have you noticed my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. He still keeps his integrity, so you have incited me against him to destroy him for no good reason. Rabbi Yochanan is deeply troubled by this verse, and he says in Sanhedrin, were it not explicitly written in the verse, it would be impossible to say this. The verse states, you moved me against him like a person whom others persuade and allows himself to be persuaded, as if God had not wanted to do anything, but allowed himself to be persuaded to bring harm to Job. Rabbi Yochanan, with great hesitancy, is forced to admit that Satan has come up with an idea formerly unconsidered by God, and once stated, God is forced to consider and then act according to the idea. The answer is, of course, that Job remains standing steadfast in his belief of God and unwilling to listen to those surrounding him. He is repaid at the end with family, wealth, and health and dies in his old age content. In other words, he emerges on the other side of his own private tochacha, inflicted upon him for no other reason than to prove to Satan that mankind has the ability to prevail in their faith of God under unbelievable challenges. And the story ends. What happens in rabbinic text is an intertwining of the story of Job with the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, with the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Satan will play a role in both the Akedah and on Rosh Hashanah and will continue to challenge the question of mankind's worth in this world. He will act as both the adversary represented by his name, Satan, which means adversary or to oppose, and he will serve as a prosecutor to mankind's existence. Because of the meaning of his name and the role he plays in Job, he is a fitting metaphor for the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, and Rosh Hashanah, together with Yom Kippur, become a fitting symbol that answers Satan's challenge to the book of Deuteronomy and ties everything to the end of Deuteronomy, which introduces the model of tshuva. While Job emerges victorious from his text, he is not a major biblical character. We are not descendants of Job, but descendants of Abraham. And so in classic rabbinic tradition, the test of Job evolves into the test of Abraham at the Akedah. And Satan becomes the one who precipitates God's choosing to test Avraham in a manner even more shocking than the tests of Job. For Avraham will be asked to slaughter by his own hand, his beloved son granted to him as a gift from God at the age of 100, in line with the model set out in Deuteronomy, which promises for fertility and blessing to those who believe in God and follow in his way. In the Talmudic passage in Baba Batra, Job is presented as more beloved of God, and Satan sets out to prove to God that Avraham is even worthier of God's favor. In the Talmud, it goes as follows. The Satan says to God, Master of the universe, I have gone to and fro throughout the entire world, and I have not found anyone as faithful of your servant Avraham, to whom you said, Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and the breadth of it, for I will give it to you. And God then responds to Satan, Have you considered my ser- servant Job? There is none like him on earth. In other words, there is kind of a, a jockeying for who the bigger righteous tzaddik, the righteous man is. God puts forth Job, Satan puts forth Avraham. And in this way, the path to the Akedah unfolds. At the end of the passage, Rav Acha acknowledges that Satan is only acting for the sake of heaven and is trying to force God to choose Avraham as the most righteous of men. 
and Satan kisses the feet of Rav Acha in gratitude for understanding that his actions are only to refine and purify the belief of Avraham, heightening his character so that he remains in the foreground and exceeds Job in God's eyes. This, of course, is very rabbinic. The rabbinic approach favors Avraham, since Avraham is a more significant forefather than Job. In addition to this passage in Baba Batra, there are several Midrashic traditions that appear on the source sheet, and many more that do not, that play with the idea that Satan tries to oppose Avram's blind acceptance of God's test at the Akedah. In other words, Satan incites God, or persuades God, to test Avraham, and then he does his best to um, force Avraham, or convince Avraham, to fail at the test. In the Sanhedrin text, Satan quotes verses, ironically or deliberately, from Job, and Abraham quotes verses back from Psalms and from Job, and they interact in this way of quoting verses to one another. What is interesting is that at the end, Satan tells the truth. He says to Avraham, when he sees Avraham is not heeding him, I want to tell you what I've heard from behind the curtain is that there is going to be a sheep sacrificed as a burnt offering and not Isaac. But he is not believed. He reveals to Avraham the end of the story that a sheep will be sacrificed. And Avraham refuses to take the easy way out, heightening his worth, the Midrash suggests, in God's eyes by refusing to listen to what he most wants to hear. This surpasses to some degree Job's righteousness because Job has never shown the end of the story and thus cannot reject the happy ending while he is suffering in exchange for resolutely going forward on the mission set out for him. In some narratives, Satan recognizes Abraham as indefatigable in his belief and turns to Isaac in an attempt to dissuade him to reject God. Eventually, he makes his way to Sarah. One of the Midrashim I most love shows tremendous psychological insight. Instead of maligning God or the mission set out by God as immoral and corrupt, Satan tells Avraham that he will be left alone, abandoned and alienated from society. This is in Midrash HaGadol on your source sheet. Everything Avraham has fought and worked towards his whole life will be discredited. In some ways, this is worse than losing wealth and health. Instead of threatening Abraham with curses and misfortune, he plays with his mind in a way that can easily fit with the challenges being religious has in the mind. Modern world. For instance, wondering whether one's religious beliefs justify isolation or alienation or humiliation. What to do when a religious belief or practice puts us in conflict with modern values and moral behavior? These remain relevant questions. Avram, of course, perseveres and is rewarded, but interestingly, God does not come directly to stop him and sends an angel who tells him that he has passed the test. In fact, God never speaks to Avram again after the Akedah. Was Satan correct in suggesting that Avram should refuse God's test? We will never know, of course, but the ambiguity is haunting. Are there times we are meant to refuse God's direct command? Finally, when he is unable to convince either Abraham or Isaac to turn back, Satan appears before Sarah and reveals to her that Avram is about to slaughter her son. Perhaps he was hoping to turn her against God, but in the end, she too refuses Satan's wishes. Instead of blaspheming God or questioning his providence, she cries out in pain and dies. The Midrash says she gives three cries, howls really, that correspond to the cry of the shofar, the tekiah. In this Midrash, she expresses tremendous pain over the perceived reality Satan has presented, but he fails to convince her to alter her belief. Instead, unable to deal with the pain, she she dies. 
The cry of the shofar in this midrash, which is in Pirkei to Rabbi Eliezer in your source sheet, reflects our legitimate cry over pain inflicted by God, by a difficult reality, by suffering experienced in the world. But it is not the cry of rejection or heresy. Satan has failed with Avram, with Isaac, and now with Sarah in his mission to expose mankind as fraudulent in their fidelity to God. Satan and Rosh Hashanah already become intertwined when the Midrashic and the medieval interpretation suggests that the day mentioned in chapter 1 of Job is actually Rosh Hashanah. The day Satan chooses to put mankind on trial becomes representative of the day the children of Israel every year go beyond the model of reward and punishment in Deuteronomy and continue to crown God king despite the exile and suffering. The shofar becomes inextricably intertwined with a passage in Tractate Rosh Hashanah in your source sheet. In this passage, we discover that originally there was one set of shofar blowing with 30 blasts of tekiah, truan, shvarim, and the purpose of shofar blowing was to crown God king. The shofar served the purpose of the role of a trumpet, heralding the arrival of the king, and the prayer, the Musaf prayer of Malchuyot, Zichronot, and Shofrot, reflects that relationship between shofar and God in the nation. But it evolved into two sets of 30 in the period of the late Mishnah, early Talmud, somewhere between 200 and 300 CE. The Talmud explains that this second set of blasts was meant to confuse the Satan. How does it confuse the Satan? Nachmanides explains it's like a trial. The defense presents its case. The prosecution rebuts everything the defense presents, and then the prosecution rests, thinking it has done its job well. The second set of blasts is the defense reopening his argument without the critique of the prosecution. What is left is the lingering sound of the shofar, which reminds God of all the reasons he has created us and the good we continue to do. Rabbi Sachs has a more profound idea, that the second set of blasts represents faith in the aftermath of the curses mentioned in the Tochacha, destruction, devastation, exile, terrible suffering, and pain. The fact that we can blow the shofar in the aftermath of such suffering completely confounds Satan and validates God's belief that humans can always rise up against all odds and search out God's presence in the world against reason. There is a malevolent description of Satan heaping our transgressions onto a scale and God surreptitiously removing them as Satan goes out in search for more. In a rabbinic text on Yom Kippur, Satan is forced to acknowledge that the gift of the Day of Atonement is to give us the opportunity to try again, whatever our misdeeds over the next past year. Job challenges Devarim, but Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the answers to Satan's challenge to the validity of mankind's existence. The book of Deuteronomy exhorts us to follow the word of God and enter into a covenant with him, both as individuals and as a nation. There may be rewards in this earth, and there may be physical blessing, but, there's, but there certainly will be consequence for rejection. These may be physical curses, or they may be more subtle. The model is only that, a model. It cannot possibly answer every question about why certain things challenge our understanding of God's role in the world. Whether we stand on the mountain of Grizim or the mountain of Eval, as set up in this week's Parsha, with one representing blessing and the other representing curse, we say Amen, Amen to human agency, Amen to divine providence. We accept, but that acceptance is not the finality. The model of reward and punishment and blessings and curses does not reflect the greater complexity of God's interaction with the world and mankind in particular. As Rabbi Yochanan said in a whisper, dare I suggest that God himself was influenced or incited by Satan? The question is left hanging. Even Job, even Abraham, even we will not be left alone to always enjoy the fruits of our righteousness. 
What we can know with certainty, says the text, is that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur will always provide a way back. God champions what he has chosen to create. We cannot always undo what has been done, but the high holy days continue to come every year. Every year as we read Kitavo, we can stand again on Mount Grizim and Mount Evel metaphorically and say Amen, Amen, but that is only one part of our story. And Tshuva, which is in the next week's Torah portion, as well as Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, come to push us on a more complex journey in our interaction with one another, with God, and with the world. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Nechama. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. 